I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take D.C. on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty, Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, and welcome back to The Carol Markowitz Show on iHeartRadio. Yesterday was Valentine's Day, and I have to be honest with my listeners, we don't do Valentine's Day in our home. I just have always found the day cheesy, and my husband obviously loves that he's cleared from buying me overpriced flowers or taking me to some you know, $500 prefix menu. But I've learned over the years not to rain on everyone's parade. If you like the holiday and you celebrate, I really hope you had a good one. In my last monologue, I said that if you want to meet someone, if you're single and you're hoping not to be, one of the things you have to do is cut off hooking up with someone from the past. Despite my not enjoying Valentine's Day, I nevertheless think it's a very good barometer for where your relationship is. If you're sleeping with someone and you can't spend Valentine's Day with them, even casually, then they are not for you and you need to let go. We talk about loneliness, we talk about how to meet people, but I rarely hear people talk about how spending time with the wrong people is stopping you from meeting the right person. It's really wasting your time. If you want to meet the right person, end it completely with the wrong one. When I talk to single people, like I've said before, I don't want to give them cliche advice like get out there or have you used the apps or other such comments. Katrina Trinko had a great piece yesterday up on the Daily Signal website. She wrote, it's so, so ugly out there in dating today. That really made me think. And I feel this for my single friends so often. There's no easy solution. I want to read some more from Katrina's piece. Quote, as conservatives look to advocate marriage, it's not enough to talk about its importance. We need to talk about healthy marriages. We need to talk about how porn warps imaginations and hearts. We need to look at the bruised, wounded singles of today and not say, why aren't you married? But is there a way I can help? Maybe it's married couples setting up mutual friends. Maybe it's all of us praying. Maybe it's helping a friend who is struggling to become a better person, which will benefit the culture whether he ultimately gets married or not. 
Maybe sometimes it is, if asked for advice by a single friend, to gently nudge them away from excessive pickiness. Maybe it's married couples with decades of success mentoring younger couples, helping them learn how to communicate and love in a healthy way. Maybe it's criticizing the dating landscape of today and saying, who's happy? Can sexual pleasure really be worth all this? Maybe it's showing there can be a different way where you prioritize a selfless love, not just sexual pleasure. Maybe it's more recently married couples who survived today's dating landscape, sharing how they kept hope and persisted, end quote. What she describes is what I hope to do with this show. Advocate for marriage, yes, but show people how good it can be and what it takes to make it good, to be honest about it, to really be honest about it. Although, side note, I'd add that sexual pleasure is much more common, according to every single study, in the married world than in the single one. So if you're looking for it there, there's your first mistake. The dating world isn't easy, and I agree with Katrina that married people should help make it easier for our single friends. Set up your single friends, and most importantly, tell them to stop wasting time with their ex. Coming up next, an interview with Mitch Rochelle. Join us after the break. AI might be the most important new computer technology ever. It's storming every industry, and literally billions of dollars are being invested. So buckle up. The problem is that AI needs a lot of speed and processing power. So how do you compete without costs spiraling out of control? It's time to upgrade to the next generation of the cloud. Oracle Cloud Infrastructure, or OCI. OCI is a single platform for your infrastructure, database, application development, and AI needs. OCI has four to eight times the bandwidth of other clouds, offers one consistent price instead of variable regional pricing, and of course, nobody does data better than Oracle. So now you can train your AI models at twice the speed and less than half the cost of other clouds. If you want to do more and spend less like Uber, 8x8, and Databricks Mosaic, take a free test drive of OCI at oracle.com strategic. That's oracle.com strategic. oracle.com strategic. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, digs deep into the history of professional basketball, along with my own as one of the first female sportscasters. Now let's get you up to speed on what else happened around the NBA today. We talked to all sorts of people I interacted with, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley and recap iconic moments. Yes, he's got it. Here he comes. Ray rocked the baby to sleep and slammed up. As well as some of the wild stories behind the scenes. We were like, what? What are we in for? The scoreboard crashes before we even tip a game off. Today, the NBA is a global sports and entertainment giant. Players are multimillionaires and cultural icons. Iguodala to Curry, back to Iguodala, up for the layup. Oh, blocked by James. LeBron James. And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storr on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
Hi, and welcome back to the Carol Markowitz Show on iHeartRadio. My guest today is Mitch Rochelle. Mitch is Managing Director at Madison Ventures, Visiting Research Fellow at the University of San Diego School of Business, and a Center Clip contributor. Hi, Mitch. So nice to have you on. Great to see you, Carol. So Mitch and I had been friendly for a long time online, and then we finally ran into each other and met in person at a bat mitzvah in South Florida, which I think is a very Florida Jewy story, right? <laughs> How long have you been in Florida? What's your, what's your Florida timeline? So this was a COVID sort of passion project. Uh, mm-hmm. I was doing a lot of segments on different networks talking about this weird housing boom that was happening during COVID. And my standard line was uh, when you're stuck in a cabin and you have cabin fever, the mm-hmm. thing you dream about the most is having a new or bigger cabin. Yes. So I, yeah. I, so I started doing it. I was doing exactly what audiences were doing. I was on like Redfin and Zillow mm-hmm. looking at houses in Florida. And we finally, but my college age kids were at home because mm-hmm. they got kicked off campus. So right. uh, once my kids went back to school, my wife and I came down to Florida, uh, Southeast Florida. We did our what and where trip to kind of figure out what we wanted and where. Mm-hmm. And I finally found the home that we're living in, in uh, July of 21. 21. Uh, we closed okay. in July. I found it and <laughs> closed in the same yeah. calendar month. And amazing. Um, we have been here ever since. That's awesome. I mean, I I think that that's the sort of the timeline other than the closing within a month for most people, like the figuring out where, and it was, you know, during the COVID years, uh, we just saw this, you know, obviously huge influx of people, but my brother is a realtor in New York. And he said that that COVID time period, he was like, you were home and you started to realize everything that you hated about your home. It was like looking around, like, I can't live here anymore. This is crazy. I got to get out of here. And obviously a lot of people did just that. So I see you as a very financy guy. You're on Fox Business a lot. What do Americans misunderstand about finance in general and maybe personal finance in particular? I think personal finance is probably the most misunderstood thing amongst uh, upright walking mammals. All right. It's probably not just true of uh, America. I think it's probably a global phenomenon. Um, you're going to talk about non-human, like, you know, monkeys also do not understand monkey, personal monkey, finance. They, 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 <laughs> some monkeys hoard bananas. So yeah, <laughs> some monkeys can't find bananas. Right. Uh, some, uh, but I, I have a historical perspective in it because back in my former life, uh, when I was a partner in a big accounting firm in the world uh, for four decades, Mm -hmm. I actually led an effort to teach financial literacy to kids. And if there's one thing that the financial crisis taught us, and I'm talking about the 0809 global financial crisis, Mm -hmm. is people didn't understand that if you borrowed money, you actually had to repay it. (laughs) So we thought maybe there's a way systemically that we could help make this not happen again. And we started volunteering. We actually volunteered as a firm a million hours in schools across America And uh, so I learned a lot and I realized that teachers don't teach financial literacy to kids because to teach it, here's the one thing I'll say about a teacher. Every teacher in their life has been a substitute teacher once. Mm -hmm. And when you're a substitute teacher, you're kind of unprepared and the kids take advantage of you. The thing that they feel most unprepared about is to teach a topic that they don't know. So financial literacy is a topic that they don't know. They're probably not financial literate. 
themselves so they don't teach it to kids. So the problem we have is that no one's teaching our kids mm-hmm. about money so that us as a society don't understand money. Like it's period full stop. Right. Um, I think I, I mastered the art of explaining complicated financial mm-hmm. things to America and I do it on TV regularly, but the, for the average person, they don't get it. And I, and I think until we start making financial literacy part of the curriculum in 50 states and we teach teachers how to teach it, mm-hmm. um, we're going to continue to have this problem where people just don't understand money. What age group do you aim that education at? Um, I thought the sweet spot was third to fifth graders, literally. Mm. Um, the, first of all, they're interested in it. We would show up in a school with 15 volunteers and we'd say, hey, we're here to talk about money. There mm-hmm. wasn't an eye in the room that didn't <laughs> light up, right? Because kids understand yeah. what money is. And it's a topic that they are somewhat passionate about. And we just put it... The, we. We had a professional firm create curriculum for us. So it was sort of boiled down. Um, and our people and our firm love volunteering in schools. So it was a really neat program. It could be replicated. And but teachers, again, like there's probably not a teacher that hasn't been laid on a credit card payment or doesn't have a student loan. Like they just feel inadequate to talk about a topic that they don't feel that they've mastered themselves. And mm-hmm. that as a result, and by the way, it's not like the people in my firm who volunteered were like, so finan- they were financially literate, right. but they probably, you know, fell behind on credit card payments like everybody else. Right. I mean, I don't think I could teach a class like that. I, I, I feel like I generally understand the financial systems and, or personal finance and what I could pass on to my kids, but I don't know that I could third to fifth graders. That's a tough demographic. <laughs> They're they're way more cooperative Mm -hmm. than the sixth to eighth graders. That's why we like the third (laughs) and fifth graders. That that seems right. Uh, But I love that idea. I think that that's something that we should be having in all schools. Like, you know, we used to talk about how to balance a checkbook. And of course, nobody has checkbooks now. But still, the idea of what comes in and what goes out. I come with props, Carol. This is on my desk. (laughs) This is a Ziploc bag full of checkbooks. (laughs) What do you use them for? Like electricity bills and that kind of thing? No, there. Uh, one was there because I had to pay taxes on uh, January 15th. Mm-hmm. Uh, one was there because I had to pay the guy who's doing my garage floor and garages. With a um, check. Yeah, they wanted a check. Uh-huh. Uh, and uh, They don't know yeah, about don't, Venmo? <laughs> Venmo, Zelle, PayPal, mm-hmm. wire. Tra- well, I didn't want to pay the $15 wire transfer fee, mm-hmm. but um, but they wanted a check. Wow. Uh, I don't yeah. even know where to get one. <laughs> Do I <laughs> my call wife, my bank? <laughs> my wife and I have this debate all the time, like, cause my kids are in the workforce now and mm-hmm. she goes, no one's ever taught them how to balance a checkbook. I'm like, they don't, they don't write checks. Right. They, they've never, they pay, but, they, yeah. they pay, they pay rent electronically. Mm-hmm. It's an automatic hit from their, like, Yes. But the concept is the same, like making sure that you don't have more going out than you have going in. And I just, that seems like an easy concept, but I think for a lot of people, that's really tough. Um, I just read this fiction book uh, unrelated to, you know, the financial system or anything. It was called uh, Fast Food for Millionaires. And in the book, this woman keeps making the wrong financial decisions. And that's not even like the theme of the book, but I, I felt like just yelling at her all the time. And at the very end, after she like gone to business school and decided to like 
Um, and she was trying to get into this like financial firm and she got, she got landed a really great job. She decided to like pursue her happiness and like not take that job. And I'm like, no, you're in debt. Take the job. <laughs> like, you know, so I, I think that kids could benefit from understanding that they need to kind of make decisions that will pay their bills and not just like we pursue happiness, you know? I, I would say this, that um, anxiety, forget about like range anxiety of electronic ve- electric vehicles. I don't want to talk about that, but like anxiety about the range of one's money mm-hmm. is probably the thing that keeps most people up at night and causes yeah. stress in relationships, right? Infidelity is not the number one cause of mm-hmm. divorce in this country. Money is the number one cause of divorce in this country. And um, people don't have honest conversations about money. And the simple, the, the, the basic unit of financial literacy or, or platform of financial literacy is the budget. You just said it yourself, Carol, mm-hmm. like knowing that what's going coming in and what's going out, like there's a gap between the two of them, like more mm-hmm. is coming in than what's going out. I had a conversation with my almost 24-year-old son who works for a big accounting firm who majored in accounting and finance because he said he couldn't afford like something like cable is a cable television is a scam in America. Like that's maybe a whole nother show, but he <laughs> said, I couldn't afford this like sports package. Mm-hmm. I'm like, Sam, it's like, I don't know, $69 a month. You can afford it. And we're sitting at a pizzeria in um, Murray Hill, New York City. And I like, literally, I looked at his checking account online. I looked at the inflows and outflows. I showed him his checking balance. I wrote it out on a napkin, literally. And I said, you can absolutely afford 60 something. And so he has the tools to understand mm-hmm. that. He has the tools to do that. But people are so anxious about money that yeah. they don't even do the math because they're worried what the outcome is going to be. It's funny because I think it usually works the other way with 24-year-olds where they're like, I could totally afford this. And they actually cannot afford it. He, <laughs> so I don't know. I don't, a, I don't think it's bad that your son is like no, kind of no, frugal, no, no. you know? No, no. He, he's, he's good that way. Um, and, but he's also, he, he said to me once, um, I don't know, some, I, I, I have a boat um, and I got a new one. Uh, and he goes, dad, can you afford that? <laughs> <laughs> Don't worry about it, Sam. Like, I can I can I can afford the boat. Don't worry. Cutting into your inheritance, Sam. <laughs> exactly. So I mentioned that you're on Fox Business a lot. Do you get recognized? Like, is it uh, that? That's. I'm going to tell you mm-hmm. two interesting things. One, mm-hmm. first of all, I could walk down. I could literally walk down Sixth Avenue in Manhattan, a building that you used to work in, a mm-hmm. building that uh, we've both had makeup put on our faces in. Sure. And uh, I've walked outside of the building. And people don't recognize me. I'm literally in New York City, yeah. coming out of Fox, getting walking into a town car. I can go to a pizzeria in my town in Florida, and people will recognize me. It, well, it, I, so it, here's my thinking on this, because yeah. I have had, obviously, the same experience, right? I, yeah. I'm a New York Post columnist for like 13 years now. Um but I almost never got recognized in New York. Like occasionally it would happen. Like I remember one time on Facebook Marketplace, I bought some like Thomas the Train for my sons and they were like, oh my God, we're such big fans of yours. Um, so stuff like that. But I would say I, what I think is that in New York, we are trained not to like react to famous people. Not that, you know, or make not, eye, or not that I'm famous, you're, but yes, You're trained not to make know. eye contact yes. with people in New York. We sat like, I mean, I've a million times next to celebrities, but one time we were at Little Owl, which is this tiny restaurant in the West Village. And we sat like 
three inches from Will Ferrell. And we didn't even like not, I mean, to say we did not acknowledge him, like he was just any other, like if he was having this conversation right now, he'd be like, nobody recognized me that night because we didn't even like look at each other and be like, Oh, look, it's Will Ferrell. Um, So I think that that's just a New York thing. Whereas in Florida, you know, the lady at Publix is like, I saw you on TV. Like it's a lot more common here to, you know, just be like, oh, I know who you are. And that's funny. Um, whereas she, in New York, she you said, you, hey, wait, I recognize you. You're Miranda Devine from the New York Post. <laughs> no, but you know what I do get a lot? Yeah. Like, hey, you look really familiar. Did we go to high school together? <laughs> I'm like, yeah. no. I'm like, do you watch right. Fox? And they're like, oh, yes, yeah. yes, Fox, yeah. right? Not high school. Um, but do you like getting recognized? Do you like living a public life? I don't mind it. Um, but you know what? Um, I was in the presence of Roger Ailes twice in my life. Mm -hmm. Okay. Once was a random elevator ride with Mr. Ailes. And once was another time when he was holding court and I got kind of pulled into him holding court. And he said, not to me, but to this group, know who's listening, know who's watching you all the time. Like never lose sight of that when you're talking to the camera or Mm -hmm. the green dot right now on my computer, like know who you're talking to. And that literally sent kind of chills up and down my spine. But like, I feel like the people in New York, I'm not talking to them. Mm -hmm. I'm talking to whatever, 38 other States and random people. Mm -hmm. So when I meet them, um, long-winded answer to your question. When I meet them, the guy who was trimming my palm trees in front of my house who recognized <laughs> me, but I feel like I already have a relationship with him, right? Because because he's been watching me and listening to me, um, and that's why I engage. Uh, I watched one of your clips. I think it was with Dana Lash, but I like I I engage with viewers who, or listeners on Twitter mm-hmm. because they took the time to listen and comment. If somebody's just throwing shade at me because they're an anti-Semite and they don't Mm -hmm. like what I said, forget it. I block them and I move on. Yeah. But I I try to engage with those people because they've taken the time. So quite honestly, I'm flattered. Um, Being on television is a is a honor to me. Like Mm -hmm. it's 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 not a right. It's a privilege. And I never take it for granted and I never lose sight of it. So um, I love the the people at the pancake place around the corner Mm -hmm. who stop at my table. Like I, I'll talk to them for twenty minutes. Yeah, because, I'm the same. You know what? Yeah, yeah. I, I, you know, I like the people. I don't want to ch- shift topics, but when I wear my fox, I don't. There's only one hat I wear to the gun range, which is my Fox News hat, <laughs> and uh, I end up getting into long conversations with people there who recognize me. So, oh, uh, funny. Yeah, I, yeah. I, should, I should wear some paraphernalia to the gun range. Um, the only <laughs> thing that now at the gun range, it's like I, I you know, I wear a Star of David all the time. I always did, uh, but now it's like they're just all over the gun range, and you know, people are with like massive highs, and um, it's it's nice. <laughs> I, I, <laughs> I see I you. A, yeah, I had a pickup. Up, um, when I got my concealed carry permit in Florida, I had to pick up my certificate of completion mm-hmm. of the class that you have to take. The you know whatever it is the the NRA you used know, to first be, but class. not anymore. Right. Yeah, you 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 constitutionally you can carry, mm-hmm. but if you don't want to wait the five day waiting period, or 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 if you want reciprocity in other states, you need mm-hmm. a concealed carry permit. So I had taken the class one on one with an instructor several months ago. And I had my appointment for my permit. So I had to get the certificate from him. 
So I went to a gun shop where he teaches the class on Sundays because they're closed. And I happened to be wearing an IDF t-shirt or hoodie. I don't remember Mm -hmm. which one. And I was in and out. I just didn't want to interrupt his class. He saw me. He handed me the certificate. And then one of the guys who works in the gun shop who helps him teach the class says, what's with that shirt? Everybody's wearing it. And I looked at the the Mm -hmm. people sitting around the table in the class. Mm -hmm. Three of the people were wearing IDF shirts. (laughs) (laughs) So he wasn't being a jerk because that's what I thought. No, 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 no. no, He was genuinely curious. Like, what's going on? What what kind of cult is this? (laughs) The guy who owns the gun shop happens to be Jewish. um, Uh But... um, uh, in any event, it was funny that like there's this theme. So maybe I'll wear the IDF hoodie next time to the gun range. Uh, yeah, so that's, that's good. <laughs> right. Good move. We're going to take a quick break and be right back on the Carol Markowitz show. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, digs deep into the history of professional basketball, along with my own as one of the first female sportscasters. Now let's get you up to speed on what else happened around the NBA today. We talked to all sorts of people I interacted with, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley, and recap iconic moments. Yes, he's got it. Here he comes. Ray rocked the baby to sleep and slammed up as well as some of the wild stories behind the scenes. We were like, what? What are we in for? The scoreboard crashes before we even tip a game off. Today, the NBA is a global sports and entertainment giant. Players are multimillionaires and cultural icons. Iguodala to Curry, back to Iguodala, up for the layup. Oh, blocked by James! LeBron James! And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storr on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So we talked about what people don't know about you know, the financial world. Um, what would you say is our larger, largest cultural or societal problem? And do you think it's solvable? 
Um, let me go with solvable and because that's the that's the easier answer. And mm-hmm. I don't think it is. Um, it's, it's harder for society to solve the problem. I think tribalism is the biggest problem we have as a society. Um, I didn't make up that term. Uh, probably our mutual friend, Lee Carter, who we've done TV with uh, over the years. Lee actually said it on the air once. Um, and I said, wow, that that so perfectly sums up what we are all about. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember when like George Bush 43 ran for president and there were, there was, he was a polarizing figure, you know, amongst certain, you know, folks. Um, but I don't remember our country being tribal on September 12th. Okay. Mm-hmm. Our country was like sort of the way Israel is right now when you're attacked, like right. everybody comes together and they, they push stupid politics aside. I feel like no event can bring this country together from the, how tribal it's become. Um, and, and I know your show is not about politics, but I just feel that like how many friends have you and I lost mm-hmm. because we feel a certain way about politics and we have friends who can't see past that to continue to be friends with us yeah. because we voted for somebody. Um, and I'll give you the worst possible example of this. Um, we my wife and I were at Costco and we bought an American flag because it was cool. Mm-hmm. And we put it on our house in New York. A neighbor um, saw it while walking her dog and texted my wife and said, couldn't help but notice the flag on your house. New look for the neighborhood. What was your inspiration? Wow. Okay. That to me is how tribal we've become. That the, the, exist, the existence mm-hmm. of an American flag um, which, you know, anybody who said the Pledge of Allegiance in kindergarten or learned it in kindergarten mm-hmm. understands the significance, hopefully, of what that flag represents. But somehow the American flag has become a, uh, I don't know, whatever, a symbol of a tribe. Yeah. It's not mm-hmm. its not the tribe's flag. It's our collective flag. Yeah. And that's what frightens me. And I don't think it's fair to throw hyperbolic language and uh, at one political figure versus another. I think it may, is the cause cable television? I don't think so because in 1773, the framers of this country before 1776 had left, right and center and disagreed and they yeah. yelled about it and they printed about it. Um, the, the New York post, your, your employer, uh, you know, the oldest newspaper in America mm-hmm. has been on the side of, a, you know, a certain political view for much of its existence. That's not, that's not cable television's fault. Right. right. So, but the, the, the dial has been turned up to like, if, if from one to 10, where 10 is like, you can't touch it. We're like at an 8.5 in terms of how, um, toxic the tribalism is in this country. Mm-hmm. And I, don't know what fixes it, but because it's a two-part question, just like I talked about financial literacy at the top of the show and how we teach financial literacy in, you know, to kids and it hopefully makes a difference. I think we need to teach tolerance to our children and not just tolerance for this marginalized community. And we have to be tolerant of them. Tolerance mm-hmm. for all, right? Yeah. Um, the, the constitution freedom of speech, freedom of expression, right. like those constitutional rights, civil liberties, freedom, 
that should be taught to kids in school, not the ideology. Uh, you know, Vivek Ramaswamy talks about the tyranny of the minority, like not not tyrannical um, mm-hmm. ideology, but just tolerance. I think we should teach that to our kids and what that really means. And then maybe that's the fix because I think older generations, they're lost. Yeah, (laughs) right. That American flag story is really depressing. I I think about that where, you know, there was a New York Times columnist that like the woman who thought that Bloomberg could give every voter a million dollars, like, you know, so she's she's really up there. Um, she said that uh, she went to Mara Gay. Actually, her name is Mara Gay. Um, she went to Long Island and she saw all these American flags and she felt like threatened by them. And I was just thinking, if like my worst enemies started flying the American flags, like if they, the people who I don't even know, like I just Hamas supporters in America started rallying with American flags. Would I surrender that as my own flag, as my own symbol? Never. I don't care who right. else flies it. It's mine. It belongs right. to me. It's part of right. my culture. It's my country. And the idea that like somebody else flies the flag and it, and it means something else, that's, that's crazy to me. It's just being an immigrant, I mean... The, the Pledge of Allegiance is literally the first English I ever knew. I am all about the patriotism, and I, I think it's so sad that people just give it up because they think, oh, the other side is into this, and I can't be into it, too. I'll, I'll <laughs> say two more things about the flag. One is my golf bag. I know it sounds like a first-world mm-hmm. problem, but my golf bag <laughs> is all red. Well, this is from New York. It's all red, uh-huh. white, and blue. There's uh-huh. nothing on my golf bag that isn't red, white, and blue. It has an American flag on the side of it. And the woman who runs a pro shop at my club, sorry, that sounds really <laughs> Florida. crappy in New York, but this is New York. Oh, is this still New York? Uh, this is, New okay, York. Okay, this is still okay. New York. All right. She, she saw that thing uh, at a, and she says, Mitch, I'm getting one of these things for you. It's got your name written all over it. So in any event, I had my golf bag outside and a guy who is a political operative for the left um, said to me, uh, I love your MAGA golf bag. Uh, and I like went, I went bananas yeah. and I said, I'm not going to use his name, but I said, there's nothing on my golf bag that says MAGA. Right. It's just red, white, and blue. And in fact, MAGA is red and white with no blue. Okay. And so to him, he's in a tribe to him, just the existence of right. red, white, and blue in his brain, there's like a synapse gap that jumped to um, MAGA. The other thing I'll say in my orange theory that I, go to somewhat religiously around the corner from me. Um, I don't know. I got into this conversation with this woman about moving to Florida. She's also a refugee from New York. Mm -hmm. And I said, I moved down here because no one is going to say to me anything about having an American flag. Right. She goes, Oh, that's not true. She goes in my community, people will say something to you if you don't have an American flag. (laughs) And it's like, how have we ever weaponized the American flag? I, I don't I think just, that's true. If you don't have an American, I mean, like my community is, you know, mixed. Yeah. Some people have it. Some people don't. It's not like, yeah. come on. But, you know? but I just, I found that comment to be, I just, uh, I literally, I don't do a talk to the hand, but I just got up and walked out and my right. wife, God, God bless her, was still talking to the woman, like playing, you know, Jewish geography for 10 mm-hmm, minutes. Mm-hmm. And she said, why did you walk out? And I said, because I don't engage with morons. <laughs> I just felt like <laughs> somebody makes a comment that's that vapid. I'm just walking out the door. I'm not listening to that. So. Right. so you have a red, white, and blue golf bag. You are on TV a lot. You um, say really smart things. Do you think that you've made it? 
you know, that's I, I, you, you were kind enough to send me that question in advance. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that I am on my second career. Um, my first career was four decades long. I started at, you know, graduated from college in 1983 and I retired from the firm that I started with in 2020. So I think there was a lot of milestones in my life that would have checked the box of having made it. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think the most important thing to me retiring and trying to do something else was I worked really hard in my career to be relevant outside of the world that I was in, right? So I worked at a big accounting firm and I was a partner and I ran businesses there and I did a whole bunch of different things. But all the while I tried to be relevant in the real world because a lot of people who work for companies become very relevant in the company. Yeah. But then when they move on, they're they're irrelevant. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe it goes back to being noticed in the streets, but I did a lot of public speaking. I did a lot of things that just kept me relevant. So I feel the answer to your question is yes. I feel like I've made it because I accomplished the goal Mm -hmm. of being relevant and having marketable skills outside of what I did that, that, you know, paid my salary and created wealth for me and my family for the four decades in which I was there. So I think the answer is yes. Um, And it's also, I've been able to pursue things that I'm passionate about. Um, I once was worried because I was doing TV, and this is a phenomenon that only people who do TV truly appreciate. You get bumped from a show, which happens. Mm-hmm. Like you know, you know, when you get bumped at three o'clock in the morning, uh, you know that's annoying. <laughs> when you get bumped in the green room, it's really, really annoying. Okay, yeah, which means you're but already in the studio. Yeah, you're already and you got makeup on, and they've come to you and mm-hmm. said, "Sorry, you know, Rand yeah. Paul's going long, so you got to shut up and not come on the air." Um, but then you get ghosted by producers because it just happens. It just happens, okay? Sure. And you can get very self-conscious when that happens. So I turned to a friend of mine who's a longtime TV person, not on Fox, and I asked her about it. And I said, I really wonder if I'm like a narcissist and like I, I, I'm addicted to being on television. And now that they're ghosting me, like, I, like you know, my narcissism becoming more obvious. Uh-huh. And she said, uh, no. She said, it's not narcissism with you. You actually have this innate desire to share knowledge with people. And when you don't have the ability to share knowledge with people, it frustrates you because you have this knowledge that you want to share. And my mother was a New York City public school teacher, so it's probably genetic. Like she was a knowledge share. Mm-hmm. But like, um, so that to me is the the thing that I actually in retirement get to take my accumulated knowledge and share it with people that to me shows not it's not a matter of making it it's not a success check the box thing but it's i'm passionate about it and it allows me to do it so i only get frustrated like when i get bumped not Uh because i'm not going to be on tv that means i actually don't have to shower which is cool (laughs) but um it's that i missed an opportunity because there was something that i wanted to tell people and Mm -hmm. i don't have the ability to tell them uh, that's why well, I do podcasts and other stuff <laughs> because I I just have this desire to share things that I've learned and perspective with people, to, hopefully for their benefit. Well, we're all the better for it. So end here with your best tip for my listeners on how they can improve their lives. Um, I'm going to go to what I just said, which is I think the biggest tragedy in people's lives is they never pursued things that they were passionate about. 
Uh, and there's a variety of reasons why people don't. They don't have the resources to do it. Their spouse, partner, whatever doesn't support it. But if there's something you're truly passionate about, whether it's a hobby or a line of work, I'd rather see my kids make less money doing something that they truly love to do mm -hmm. than make more money being miserable. And um, to me, that's my best advice for people young and old. Find things that you're passionate about and don't do things in life purely for obligation. Um, religion's the best example. Like uh, I have a friend who grew up very, very religious and now is Jewish, Orthodox, mm -hmm. um, not her, not ultra Orthodox, but you know, modern, observant, yeah. mm -hmm. modern, observant, Orthodox. And he will text me on Shabbat and I'm like, dude, it's Shabbat. Mm -hmm. And he goes, man, Israel, <laughs> <I'm not> saying, <laughs> but you're, you're in the five towns. <laughs> um, but you know, and we had that conversation, like religion has become obligatory to him. And it's something that he's not, he's passionate about Israel. Okay. Mm -hmm. He's a Zionist, but religion is not as, but do things out of passion. Don't do things out of obligation. Follow your passion. Thank you so much, Mitch. It's really great having you, you on. Thanks for coming on. Anytime. It was, a, it was my pleasure. Thanks so much for joining us on The Carol Markowitz Show. Subscribe wherever you get your podcast. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleh Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., we dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty, Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.